Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn back to Mark chapter 14? Uh, we're looking from verse 41 onwards. Many will know uh, some of the history of the First World War. It's a horrific war in, in so many ways. But it all began, as probably most, if not all, know, um, in June the 28th, 1914, when the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire, he was visiting Sarajevo in Bosnia, and a nationalist came and shot him and his wife. And from that relatively small event um, in a backwater in many ways back in the early 20th century, it became one of the most significant periods of history, the most shocking period of history. It set off a chain reaction that resulted in World War I. Austria-Hungary declared, declared war on Serbia. Um, then a web of alliances kicked in, causing many other countries to get involved. And then Europe began to take sides and get involved. And ultimately, the whole world was engulfed because of this one assassination in this massive war that resulted in around 20 million deaths and another 20 million casualties. A single person's action sent massive shockwaves, not only through that decade, but through many decades since. It changed the whole setup of Europe and the culture that we now know. Well, here in Mark chapter 14 is a disciple's apparently friendly kiss of greeting on the cheek of Jesus. But this one peck on the cheek, as it was, sent was like a, a, a stone in the pond that has sent ripples throughout history, before Christ and since Christ, even up until our present day here in Gabalva. It was this moment of betrayal that should not be underestimated. We know, of course, if we read the Gospels, that up until this point, there have been many skirmishes between Jesus Christ and his enemies. Many have denied him that he was the Christ, the Messiah. They've accused him of being demonic, that his teaching was heretical. They've sought ways to get rid of him by political means. But this kiss marks a real turning point, a point from which there is no return, a point which will result in the death and the suffering of our Savior. Here, Judas, he's following the spirit of Delilah, who betrayed Samson, as Samson sought to stand against the Philistines and lead the people of God to victory and salvation, betrayed and killed as a result. Judas is following the spirit of those who betrayed Joseph in that, that triple betrayal, first from his brothers and from Potiphar's wife, and then from the cupbearer in prison, this, this denial that resulted in the, the ultimate death of Joseph. And though this can be seen as a minor act, the Judas kiss marks, in many ways, the most significant betrayal and turning point in history. Of course, there have been skirmishes previously, but this marked the final 
skirmish, the ultimate one. It was like the trigger point, the pull of the trigger on the gun that set off the death of the Lord Jesus. The Sanhedrin leaders had made the decision that this was to be the night when they finally got rid of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to arrest him, try him quickly in the middle of the night before there could be an uprising from his followers. and Maybe a revolution started if they could do it all at night, get it all done by morning, that he'd be sentenced to death and sent off to the cross before anyone could know about it then. They'd accomplish their plans, the plans over many years. Let's get him killed now. Let's Let's all get back to the status quo where we had this four power with the Romans, where we were respected, where everyone followed us and listened to us rather than this Galilean. Let's get it done and dusted tonight and let one of his own betray him. It was a minor act that led to the most significant moment of history. And ironically, the downfall of Judas and the downfall of the Sanhedrin themselves. It's a further, a further twist. They presumed that if they got rid of Jesus this night, then his whole kingdom would fall apart and everyone would forsake him and flee, which it seems like they're going to do. And yet, in that twist, it resulted in millions beginning to follow him as he would save their souls in his death upon the cross, draw many to himself, it would result in the greatest movement in world history. They thought, get rid of Jesus and the 12, done. They got rid of Jesus and it was far from done. We sit here this morning as a testimony that what happened to Samson, what happened to Joseph, was meant for evil. More than that, what was meant for Christ was meant for the ultimate evil. But God turned it for the good of his own people. They had not learned the lesson of history, had they? Betrayals against God are always turned by God for the good of his kingdom, the growth of his people, and the salvation of the lost. So what we see here, first of all, is the collision of two kingdoms where only one can win. If you look at verse 42, the Lord has been praying alone in the garden of Gethsemane. Now he wakes up his sleeping disciples and he says this to them in verse 42. He says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Literally, he uses a military word. He says to them, rise, let us advance. Let us go over the trenches. Let us go into no man's land. Let us advance the kingdom. And then Mark points out in the very next verse that he hadn't even finished calling them to advance when Judas arrives, advancing towards him with his mob of official temple police with swords and clubs advancing towards the Lord Jesus and his disciples. What descriptive language that is. Verse 42 and verse 43, it's the collision of two kingdoms. 
the advancing together of two opposing peoples, two opposing kings, the Sanhedrin, Judas, the Roman Empire, hell itself advancing against the Lord Jesus and his sorry bunch of followers. Picture trench warfare, if you've ever watched film on the First World War, even the Second World War, even now in, in Ukraine. Picture the commanding officer says, advance over the top, boys. And they climb the ladders. And they make their way through minefields and barbed wire. And they run with fixed bayonets towards one another. And they meet in no man's land and clash. This is that moment when the kingdom of heaven clashes, advances towards the advancing kingdom of darkness. It's a long-awaited moment, a moment awaited since that first clash between the first Adam and the serpent in the garden. As they clash, the kingdom of darkness overcomes that first Adam and Eve. It's the moment waited from the time when the ancient kings of Israel stood up for the people of God and advanced towards the Philistines and the other enemies of God and said, we must advance the kingdom of heaven. And they met literally on the war fields of the Middle East. A long history of the clash of the kingdoms, a long and brutal war for thousands of years had taken place since that first garden of Eden. But now in this second garden, the garden of Gethsemane, is the culmination of the clashes, the culmination of these collisions of the kingdoms as they advance towards each other. The Son of God says to his troops, let's go. Let's rise up over the top, boys. Let's go and meet this advancing kingdom of hell. And what an enemy they were about to meet the former disciple, the now traitor treasurer of the kingdom, joining forces with the supreme religious authorities of his day, the ones who said, we believe the Bible, but clearly are filled with hatred and murder on their minds. And then they have joined with the Roman armies of their day. You see these, these, this proof, if it was needed, that the old adage is true. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You would never put Judas from the kingdom of heaven, supposedly the Sanhedrin and the Roman Empire together. Only one could inspire such vile, murderous hatred and deception. Only one could join such contrary forces together against the anointed one of heaven. He was a ruler of the power of the air. A serpent who had slithered in the first garden, that hellish one. Here hell and earth combine to dispose once for all of the Christ the chosen one of God, the only hope of the world. Hell and earth combine against him. What is their shout? By any means possible, we must rid the world of Jesus. 
What was their catchphrase? What was their kingdom tagline? The end justifies the means. If we can murder him, that's fine. Murder's wrong, but it's okay if we murder this Jesus. History marks, doesn't it, the horror of war, the clashing of two earthly kingdoms together. We see the millions who have died, the horror it has brought to families for for many generations afterwards. But here is the beginning of a cosmic battle, a battle between the forces of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the sun, whom God loves. Christ says, rise up troops and advance. But his troops would scatter and flee within moments. We read it just a few verses later. One man runs off naked. He's so afraid he couldn't even have time to grab his clothes. Peter goes off in one direction, James and John another. They all forsake him and flee. For in this clash, no human being can ever stand up against the kingdom of darkness. Simply don't have the power, the moral oomph, the ability, the strength to stand up against hell. For Jesus must go it alone. There's only one in the kingdom of heaven who can advance the troops, who can win the victory, who can rise from the dead. He alone must go to the garden and pray. He alone must uh, sit in the garden. He alone must go to a trial. He alone can go to a cross. He alone can go through death and come out the other side. This is a lonely battle, a lonely clash of the kingdoms. All others would be overpowered by hell, but Jesus would go it alone. Imagine this, all the mighty kingdoms of the world arrayed against one kingdom, and then slowly everyone drifts off until there's just one king left on his own against all the kingdoms of the world and all the kingdoms of hell, just one man alone. He can never win. Of course he can. One against the hosts of earth and hell, what chance does he have? And yet we'll find out over the next few weeks how great was his victory, that he will cry, it is finished, to say, I have won. He will rise from the dead after three days, and he will be alive again and the Savior again. Because one and only one could win the victory for us. There was only one who could rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. There was only one who could beat off the whole hosts of earth and hell. Jesus Christ, the Lord. He alone has the hope of our salvation. Are you overwhelmed this morning? Overwhelmed with the power of temptation? Overwhelmed with the tug of the world? The evil of the nations that we see around us on the news? The forces of hell that are arrayed against you? You say, I can't live this life. How can I ever go forward as a Christian? How can I? It feels far too much. How can we ever win the day? Maybe you have asked yourself this week, will it ever be possible 
for me to advance, to live the Christian life as I ought, with all the deluge of pushes and pulls and temptations and trials and distractions and issues in work and at home, how can I ever focus on Christ and live for him? Well, in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, it reminds us that the same forces of darkness are still assembling themselves together against the people of God, against you individually, against us as a congregation. They, they're in their death throes, yes, but they're still shouting out their temptations, the horrors, and the inabilities that we have to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. They say, you cannot do it. You cannot make it to the end. You will fall. You will fail. You are nothing. But in the second verse of that hymn, we're reminded that there is hope for all of us in Jesus Christ. It says, should we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Brothers and sisters, there is no hope within from our own abilities, our own self. We don't have the power to overcome all the darknesses of our lives on our own. But Christ can, and Christ will keep us. He will win the victory for us and in us and through us as we cast ourselves upon him. If you've started looking inwards for hope and have just simply said, this is your final statement, I must try harder to be a Christian. If that's your only hope, you've looked inward and said that, would you this morning look to Christ once more and say, I am weak, but he is strong. I am unable on my own, but with Christ, he has advanced through hell, through death, and he has come out the other side, and he leads, he will lead me to the end. He will keep me safely as I look to him and as I trust on him. Will you entrust yourself again? Will you cast yourself upon him again and say in prayer, God, I need you. I can't do this. Who am I? All of these forces arrayed against me, but you can win the victory. Will you win the victory in me? There's another hymn that says, we rest on him, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in his strength, safe in his keeping tender. We rest on him and in his name we go. That's our hope, friends. That's our hope, brothers and sisters, that we cast ourselves upon him and he will lead us through. And he lead us, as we'll hear tonight, through our very weaknesses. And he will turn our weaknesses into strengths. When kingdoms collide, Christ must lead the charge. There's no hope on our own. Secondly, we see here the clash of value systems. 
How does Christ advance? He advances with prayer. He advances with prayer, with reliance on his Father, submission to God's will. He advances with genuine love for the enemies that are coming towards him. In just a few hours' time, he will pray for them, and he'll say, Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. Didn't realize that they were standing up against the creator of the universe, the son whom the father loves, the only hope of the world. They didn't realize. Father, forgive them. This is the advance, the advance of Christ, the values of the kingdom of heaven, very different to, the, to those of the earth, aren't they? Christ advances with faith. The weapons of his warfare are very different to the clubs and swords of the Sanhedrin police. He advances with love for the opposition, a trust that his father will work out this awful situation for the good of those who love him. Jesus advances with trust, with prayer, with love. How does Judas advance? Hypocrisy. Lord, I respect you. You're my rabbi. You're my rabbi. Lord, I love you. Kiss on the cheek. With love and respect, Judas comes. But what an hypocrisy this is. Mark uses here a very special word for kiss, only used three or four times in the New Testament, meaning a kiss of deep affection. It's used, interestingly, when, you remember the father sees the prodigal son coming home after years of betraying his own father. His father sees his son in the distance and he runs to greet his son and he kisses him with the kiss of affection. This is the word used here. Judas comes and says, Lord Jesus, I love you. You will not believe how much I have an affection for you. Judas comes across very well as if he genuinely loved the Lord, but, but no one was deceived. The Sanhedrin weren't deceived. The, the, the police weren't deceived. Christ wasn't deceived. The disciples certainly weren't. It caused them real fear to see one of their own on the enemy's side. And Christ had earlier told him to leave. Remember, leave when he washed their feet. He said, right, Judas, it's time for you to leave and go and do what you're going to do. Jesus knew. Jesus wasn't deceived by this hypocrisy. Because the kingdom Judas truly belonged to was not the kingdom of Christ that advanced through love and prayer. But he belonged to a kingdom that advanced through hypocrisy, through pretense, through deception, because it was a kingdom based upon the father of lies, Satan himself. A kingdom that requires swords and clubs and mobs of paid-off men. A kingdom that requires kangaroo courts and nighttime trials and paid-off witnesses. It requires compromising religious leaders clinging desperately to power. That is the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of deception, Kingdom of force. Do what we say or else. Believe our morals or else. 
Do what we say or you're in trouble. This is the kingdom that everyone belongs to who has not turned to Christ. I wonder this morning, friends, if that's you. You don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. You've never trusted him. You've never entrusted yourself to him. Friends, you belong to a kingdom of darkness and deception that will tell you all the lies in the world. It'll say Jesus is rubbish. The church is irrelevant. The gospel is an historical word that is meaningless for today. Come and follow our ways because they are full of power and authority. Come and follow our morals. Come and follow and believe in us. But it's a miserable kingdom of darkness and deception, of weapons and warfare. It results in division, hatred, selfishness. It's a kingdom which seeks to deceive you into thinking it's the best place on earth and that Jesus is a myth who cannot be trusted or followed. It's a kingdom which, like Judas, will use warm gestures of love to you to draw you in to its fold. It will say, we affectionately love you, come our way. But it's deception. It's trickery. It's not real. Friends, if you don't belong to Jesus, it's because you have been tricked, deceived, lied to, it comes with affection. It comes with entertainment. It comes with force. But it will always result, always, in misery and in death. It holds out no light, no love, no hope, no joy, not lasting joy. These are the methods. These are the tactics of the evil one. This is what the whole world is caught up in, in its deception and in its darkness. But Christ is advancing as well. He's advancing towards you with truth, with grace, with genuine affection, with a prayer for you. He's looking at your life and saying, you haven't known what you were doing, denying the Savior. You didn't know, did you? I'm praying for you. I know you. I know where you've come from. I know what you've done. I know everything about you. I know your secret thoughts, your hidden sins, your horrific actions of the past. I know them all. You didn't realize, did you, how evil they all were because they were against the God of heaven. Father, forgive them. for They do not know what they are doing. He's advancing towards you personally with love, tender grace. And he comes to you this morning with a genuine offer of forgiveness. And a transferal of kingdoms from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of love. His love is the only genuine love that you will ever find. It's unchangeable, eternal, it's deep and real. It's a love that resulted in his death for sinners like us. Here is the mob advancing towards him with swords and clubs, and he's advancing towards them with prayer and forgiveness and an attitude infused with mercy and grace and a willingness that the repentant might walk free. Turn away from the kingdom of darkness, he says to each one of us. 
come and trust in the King, King of all, the Lord of all, Jesus Christ, and he will transfer your kingdom to his kingdom. We even read, didn't we, of how he stands in the face of trial, all the false accusations coming against him, and he either is silent or he just gives very simple, straightforward answers. Why, Why does he stay so silent at trial? Well, because the scripture, he says, must be fulfilled. He says that, doesn't he? You come at me, but this is happening because the scriptures must be fulfilled. That say that I will be the silent lamb going to the slaughter, that the wicked might go free through my sacrifice, that the lost might be found through my death upon a cross. The scriptures must be fulfilled that said he would be falsely accused in order to allow the enemy's very death tactics against itself so that his death would result in our life. His suffering would result in our healing. His denial, the denial of him, would result in our acceptance by him. All the false justice of the kangaroo courts would result in our acceptance legally before God as we're accepted and all our sins are forgiven and we are declared right, righteous before him. Men and hell, they use all their wisdoms, all their plans to destroy the king and his kingdom. Jesus simply says, well, you're doing the will of God. Scripture must be fulfilled. And I come with you willingly, silently, because I'm going to die. And I know it's the Father's will for his world. You know, in this, his kingdom is not of this world, is it? With its one-dimensional view of how to advance through swords, through lies, through greater armies, through more particular weaponry. God turns the very sword of man, the very whips and spears and nails and cross. He turns the weapons of the kingdom of darkness into weapons of grace for the very ones who pierce his side. He uses them to heal us, to forgive us. By his stripes we are healed. By his death we are forgiven. And the more we fight against him with the weapons of this world, the more he'll turn it around and say, I'm now going to pierce you with my forgiveness. I'm now going to heal you with my grace and wash you clean by my own blood. And so we must be so careful today as a church to always continue in that vein, to use the weapons of Christ's warfare and not use the weapons of the kingdom of darkness. That those around us in our world are not one, are they, by lies and manipulation or unkindness or force. The Apostle Paul later says, doesn't he, though we walk in the flesh, we do not walk, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. They're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments, and of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, 
bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What are the weapons that we use as a church to win the world? Prayer. Preaching of the gospel. Declaration of the love of Christ. The powerful word of God. The weapons of our warfare are the word of God and prayer. We, we must, mustn't we, continually remind ourselves of this as a church. We live in a world of forcefulness, of world-focused ambition, for the desire for self-fame and glory, and churches can so easily fall into that trap. We remind ourselves the weapons of our warfare, the way that we advance as a church, as the kingdom of God upon earth, through the preaching of the gospel and through praying that the Spirit might empower that word to transform lives, that they might know God's grace. And so as a church, we, like Christ, just must quietly get on with making Christ known, depending quietly praying in our rooms, praying together as a church, crying out to God that he would bring his salvation to bear and using Christ's gentle wisdom to win the world to him. When we do that, the kingdom of darkness is pierced. It retreats. We rescue souls from the kingdom to the kingdom of light. The collision of kingdoms the clash of two value systems. And then just briefly, lastly, we see the contrast of betrayals. Judas and Peter. Two men who had stood with Jesus, who had gone out to the villages proclaiming him to, as the Christ. Both had been faithful, it seemed, to the Lord Jesus. Who had been the most vocal of the two? Of course, it was Peter. Everyone else might forsake you, but I, I'll stand with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you, Jesus, says Peter. Yet Mark records two betrayals of Jesus on this night. Of course, there was Judas's hypocritical act of love. But then there's Peter's hypocritical act of hatred. Challenged by a little girl, he begins to curse and swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. To curse is not just to use a swear word in this context. To curse Christ in the early church meant to deny him, to say that he wasn't real. It was to betray him at the deepest level of our being. Curse God and die. It was a public confession. I do not follow Jesus. I do not believe in him. In 160 AD, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, was threatened with death until, unless he cursed Christ. And the Roman proconsul told the bishop, curse Christ and I will release you. And Polycarp replied, these 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? 
Again and again through history, God's people have been put to death because they refused to curse Christ. But here is Peter, the supposed rock upon which the church will be built, crumbling before a young girl by a fire. Instead of fleeing into the night as he could have, he stands up, he says, I deny Christ. I do not believe in him. I do not belong to him. I never knew him. Who is that man? And just as Jesus had foretold before the rooster crows twice, Peter betrays. He does. He denies Christ three times. Peter, the one who's been so rooster-like, hadn't he, over the last three years, head held high, I'm the king of the roost. The leader of the kingdom, alongside Jesus, crowing about how he alone would stand with him. But in the end, that's all it took. It was a quiet word from a little girl, and the rock shattered, crumbled, and he denied. We mustn't flatten out the seriousness of what Peter did here as if it was less than Judas. In many ways, it was very similar. He was the leading disciple. Both Judas and Peter commit the most heinous crime of all. Hasn't Jesus told them not long before, if you are ashamed of me and my words, then I will be ashamed of you in this coming day of judgment. But both through Mark and the other Gospels realize what they've done and seek to go back on what they say. Both are grieved by what they've done. But it turns out, as we read the Gospels, that their grief is very different from each other. In Matthew 27, we read that Judas is remorseful. He tries to redeem himself by returning the blood money, but to no avail. He takes his own life. He seeks to bring about his own redemption by the giving away of the money he had earned. But Peter also weeps. For the shame of what he's done. But he returns to Christ. Judas looks inward for hope. Judas looks for his own actions to redeem him, whereas Peter just comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I do love you. Three times on a beach he will say it, you know I love you. You know, you know, I should never have done that. In simple Repentance and turning away from his actions in grief over his betrayal, he turns back to the living Savior and finds renewal and forgiveness. Wonder if this week you've denied Christ at the photocopier in work, the canteen in school. You go to that church, don't you? You follow that Jesus, don't you? Or not, not me. Or you've changed the subject, diverted the conversation, so you don't have to say yes. I believe in Jesus. You, you come here this morning filled with guilt, your failure to witness, your failure to stand for Christ. You feel there's no way back. Or maybe you say to yourself, I'm going to try harder this week. I'm going to be better. I'm going to find something within me. I'm going to do better next time at the photocopier. Well, you've started in the wrong place. Come and confess that to Christ. Confess your love for him. He will forgive you. He will renew you. He will empower you in the future, but you must come to him. 
You must look outwards to the Lord Jesus and the blood shed for you on the cross. Yes, you can be embarrassed and ashamed. You should be. We must be when we deny Christ, but there's hope in the gospel of the Savior. Jesus, as he did with Peter, looks at us this morning with eyes of grace, eyes that convict us, eyes that embarrass us. We've denied him again, but also eyes that draw us in with his warm grace. For behind those eyes are a man filled with truth and filled with grace. The reality is this morning that we are all failures in the kingdom of Christ. We have all often fled like the disciples for fear. We've all stood many times by that fire, diverted the conversation from the servant girl. But do not look inward. Come to him. He will abundantly pardon. He loves the people of his kingdom. Weak and vile and helpless we, spotless lamb of God is he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a saviour. We're going to come to communion in a few moments, but let's just spend a few moments together in silent confession and prayers. We rest on the Lamb of God, whose body is broken, his blood was shed, that we might know and love him. <clears throat>